the old pilot's plain tales. The Millionaire's Mob. It started as a hot chocolate emporium in 1693, founded by an Italian immigrant, Francesco Bianco, from which it gained its name, White's Chocolate House. In the 1600s, drinking chocolate was all the rage, particularly in London. The recipe was simple. Half a pint of hot water for every ounce of chocolate, two egg yolks beaten in until the mixture frothed, and then could be drunk the hotter the better. This new drink craze was considered a panacea for everything, particularly disorders of the gut, but also consumption, jaundice, plague and something called green sickness. It was also far from cheap, so it became a fashionable habit for the wealthy to consume this delicacy and chocolate houses were frequented by royalty and notables alike. The places that served this drink became known for anarchy, licentiousness, gambling, hobnobbing and politicking. However, the establishment known as White's would rise above this and transition from a tea shop to an exclusive gentleman's club, which became notorious in its own way as a gambling house. Those who frequented it were known as the Gamesters of White's. The club gained a reputation for both its exclusivity and the often raffish behaviour of its members, being referred to by a famous Irish dean as the bane of half the English nobility. As the oldest and most exclusive gentlemen's club in London, its members have included more earls, dukes, lords, barons, princes, knights, viscounts, marquises, heads of industry and notable politicians that you could shake a stick at. The name we're interested in, though, is that of Lord Edward Grosvenor, the youngest son of the first Duke of Westminster. After attending Eton, Grosvenor took to a life in the military by throwing himself in at the deep end. He joined the French Foreign Legion, notorious for its tough training, but also its traditional military skills and strong esprit de corps. From there, he transferred his loyalty to the Royal Horse Guards as a second lieutenant, before, at the outbreak of the First World War, joining the Royal Flying Corps. His conduct as a pilot saw him being awarded the Military Cross for outstanding bravery. After the war, Grosvenor was in his beloved club, enjoying his favourite pastimes, eating, drinking and gambling. However, he had some challenging hobbies and possessed his own aircraft, although he didn't much like motor cars. He actually employed an old military colleague to drive him around in a Morris taxi for two pounds a day. He was, however, adventurous enough to take part in the 1924 Gordon Bennett Balloon Race, along with squadron leader Baldwin in the British balloon Banshee 3. In the same year, he took charge of the British team that competed in the Schneider Trophy, held in the United States. 
the aircraft race never actually took place, as both British machines, including R.J. Mitchell's Supermarine S4, crashed in pre-race trials and no other nation wanted to take on the government-backed American team with their very fast Curtis Racing biplanes. It was when he was back in White that Grosvenor had the idea to form a squadron of wealthy aristocratic young aviators, all of whom were already amateur pilots and members of the club. He reasoned that the RAF needed a part-time air force, which could be called upon in times of need. Since private flying was devilishly expensive, he visioned an elite corps of young men with a thirst for adventure. In fact, Grosner's idea was also in the mind of the man whose vision would create the Royal Air Force, Lord Hugh Trenchard. Also an ex-RFC pilot, Trenchard had already proposed a citizen air force, the Auxiliary or Territorial Air Force. Seeing how this might work, Grosvenor brought together like-minded members of Whites to test the waters. The original cadre of officers were picked by Grosvenor, who would become their first commanding officer. He had an unusual recruiting procedure, which started with several extremely large glasses of port, followed by a considerable number of gin and tonics. Apparently the idea was to ensure that the recruits could be trusted not to partake in inappropriate behaviour whilst under the influence. He also wanted men who had sufficient presence not to be overawed by him, and adequate funds to partake of the squadron's practice of habitual and expensive dining. He wasn't shy of blatant nepotism, setting his nephew as one flight commander and the son of the Lord Mayor of London as the other. Owning an aircraft, or at least knowing how to fly one, was essential for membership of this new unit, as well as, of course, being rich and hailing from the right social class. After all, only an officer could fly an aircraft and only a gentleman could be an officer. One thing should be made clear, however. Grosvenor didn't recruit a bunch of overprivileged fops. With his own extensive military experience, he had no illusions about what kind of men it took to fight a war, and only accepted those who would make the grade. He also looked for attributes other than an aristocratic family, recruiting sportsmen, adventurers and self-made men as well. Five auxiliary squadrons were gazetted, two in London, one in Birmingham and two in Scotland, and Grosvenor took command of number 601, County of London Squadron. They formed at North Holt Airport in North London, conveniently close to their club, White's. They began their conversion onto the Avro 504K at a training camp at Port Limp on the south coast, and soon their neighbours, Noel Coward and Sir Philip Sassoon, a grandson of Baron Gustav de Rothschild, opened their houses to the flyers. Sassoon also happened to be the Under-Secretary of State for Air, and he quickly befriended the squadron, which couldn't have asked for a more influential ally. 
It was in these neighbouring stately homes that the squadron frequently dined with celebrities such as the Duke of York, Charlie Chaplin, Winston Churchill, Lawrence of Arabia and such. And the activities of 601 Squadron soon got into the press, who dubbed them the Millionaire's Squadron, although the regular RAF chaps would call them the Millionaire's Mob. Very soon, Grosvenor had penned a symbol for the squadron, a scarlet sword of London sprouting wings at the hilt, which would become known as the Flying Sword. Perhaps by design, he left out the usual ribbon beneath the crest, which commonly carries a motto. But despite this, it was passed by the Royal College of Heralds and made it instantly recognisable amongst the usual squadron crests. Grosvenor soon gained a reputation for being a casually friendly, humorous and fun-loving commander that endeared him to his men and fellow officers. Each man who joined 601 was impressed by his honest, magnetic personality and became devoted to him. He also made a point of ensuring that the many off-duty antics were balanced by a serious attitude to the art of war, as he fervently wanted his squadron to be acknowledged as one of the best. His men loved to hear his stories about the Foreign Legion, and he fostered the same esprit de corps as he had learned fighting with them. Such was his success that in their first year of existence the unit won the Lord Escher Trophy for the most efficient squadron. Grosvenor was not to see the fruits of his labours, however, as he died suddenly from an illness at the age of only 36. His friend, Sir Philip Sassoon, was given the task of replacing him, a job for which he was well placed. With his political connections, Sassoon was able to ensure that Number 601 Squadron was protected from any major criticism of their activities. He could also offer his pilots a stable of private aircraft to use, and he even built his own flying strip in the grounds of his stately home at Trent Park. Some of these aircraft suffered a little from over-exuberant flying escapades, one chap landed Sassoon's tiger moth on top of a cow when returning at night, and the next morning, on spying his predicament, a friend landed the Spartan biplane, which cost a pretty penny, so close to him that he promptly ran into the back. This was explained away when the pilot blithely claimed that the moth had reversed into him, and, delighted with the excuse, Sassoon paid both bills for repair. With an air of extravagance, Sassoon led the way with some flamboyant displays of dubious military dress. He had his uniform lined with red silk, wore a blue tie, not the regulation black, and had bright red socks. His officers followed suit, and with their penchant for flashy sports cars and the latest motorbikes, the squadron premises soon looked like a concorde d'élégance. The one thing that their new commander couldn't do very well, however, was fly. Eventually, a central flying school instructor was posted in with the sole purpose of getting the squadron commander safely into the air and, more importantly, back again. 
A popular game was for some of the pilots to get airborne in the two-seat Avro 504 and then change cockpits in mid-air. This was all well and good until one chap tried it with a brand new pilot, and it wasn't until the instructor got into the recently vacated cockpit that he realised that it didn't contain a vital ingredient, a stick. The pupil wasn't game to try to swap again, so he had his first landing unexpectedly thrust upon him, whilst his mentor in the back shouted at him, "'Christ, I've got no stick! For God's sake, don't crash!' Although the millionaires had a reputation for escapades and flouting the rules, they could not have got away with it without being an efficient and effective unit. They were very serious about their flying and fighting, because many of its members had visited Germany and Austria in the 30s and had seen what was growing there. This included the famous American Billy Fisk III, who had been competing in the 1936 Winter Olympics in Garmisch, Bavaria. It was there that he met a 601 Squadron member, Roger Bushell. Bushell was a barrister at Lincoln's Inn in London who excelled at cricket, rugby and winter sports. He would go on to command number 92 Squadron and after surviving being shot down, he would lead the great escape from Stalag Luft III. He was subsequently murdered by the Gestapo. Over drinks, Bushell told Fisk that the Germans must be stopped, and he was convinced that war was coming. He explained about 601 Squadron, and Fisk was intrigued. Shortly before the outbreak of war, Fisk sailed to England, pretending to be a Canadian. As an American citizen, he duly pledged his life and loyalty to the King and joined the Royal Air Force, was trained to fly and ultimately posted to 601 Squadron, now based at RAF Tangmere near the south coast. Recently equipped with Hurricanes, the Millionaire Squadron would soon be in the thick of it, flying and fighting in the Battle of Britain. During one scramble, the squadron destroyed eight Ju-87 Stuka dive bombers, but a gunner put a bullet through Fisk's fuel tank. Instead of bailing out, with his hands and legs on fire, he returned his machine to Tangmere, where medics had to extract him from his cockpit. The aircraft blew up shortly after. The brave American, who had given up so much to fight the Nazis, died in hospital of surgical shock. His flight commander said of him, In all my flying experience, I've never come across a pilot with such completely natural flying ability and quick reactions. His coffin, covered with both the Stars and Stripes and the British Union flag, was laid to rest at Boxgrove Priory Church. Inscription on his gravestone reads, he died for England, and a plaque was placed in the crypt of St Paul's Cathedral in London, which states, An American citizen who died that England might live. Another of the more colourful millionaires was the Canadian Sir John William Maxwell Aitken, 
a second baronet, and the son of the press magnate, Lord Beaverbrook. Max joined the squadron in 1936 and rose to command the millionaire's mob in 1940. He was a talented sportsman, a university blue at football and a scratch golfer. During the latter part of 1940, a period that would become famous, the pressure on the RAS fighter squadrons was intense. Those like 601, which was based on the front line, particularly so. The pilots were flying from dawn to dusk on those long summer days, and Aitken remembers his air officer commanding, Air Vice Marshal Park, visiting the base. He rode in his logbook. Flew five hours before lunch. The AOC asked, Are you tired? Aitken would move on to another squadron, but not before he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. At the end of the war, he would have been mentioned in dispatches, added the Distinguished Service Order, and would be an ace with 16 kills outright and one shared. The Millionaire Squadron would eventually change in character, as attrition and postings replaced many of the flamboyant members that had initially given the unit the flavour of a playboy's flying club. Replacements were drafted in from all walks of life and all parts of the Commonwealth to cover casualties and promotions. The squadron became as cosmopolitan as any other. However, some habits die hard, and on returning from early morning sorties, Many still made radio calls to their base with their individual breakfast orders. Bacon, egg, sadly only one due to rationing, beans and tomatoes. But the practice really annoyed the station commander. He considered it a misuse of radio communications and demanded it stop. And so it did for at least two days. Tentatively, however, it resumed, and no further complaints were made, particularly when it was rumoured by 601 Squadron that Churchill liked it. Knowing that the Germans intercepted the transmissions, Churchill, apparently, wanted them to know that food rationing wasn't a concern for the fighting forces of Britain. The argument that the part-timers of an auxiliary Air Force squadron couldn't cut the mustard of real flying and fighting was truly blown away by the performance of 601 County of London Squadron. And the same could be said about the other auxiliary squadrons. When, because of budget cuts, 601 was finally disbanded in 1957, the millionaires were flying the Gloucester Meteor, having moved into the jet age. However, more recently, the squadron was reformed at RAF Norfolk, its first home, in 2017 as a specialist support squadron. It has the unique role of formalising links between the Royal Air Force and the wider professional community, such as the Honourable Company of Air Pilots, and the worshipful company of actuaries, particularly within the City of London, where it all began.
Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guys show. And you can find out all about that fine podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoy Plane Tales, how about leaving us a review? Many thanks. Thanks.